Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 941 with Barry Sorkin. And especially, you know, listen, if you think you're opening up your restaurant and you're better than the next guy, you can't expect to be able to price yourself like the next guy because doing it better costs more. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Today's episode is brought to you by Pop Menu, and restaurants have been hit hard over the past last years, which means restaurant owners and their staff have been working harder than ever, trying to meet the expectations of in-person hospitality can be demanding, which is why I recommend Pop Menu Answering. Pop Menu Answering turns every restaurant phone call into an opportunity because it uses artificial intelligence to answer the simple questions that are tying up your phone lines, like... Can I make a reservation or where are you located? And over 50% of restaurant guests are happy to have their questions answered by an automated system. For a limited time, my listeners can get $100 off their first month plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro and they are launching their first time ever 60 day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant System Pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants. Fred will teach you recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, it, more butts and seats, and that's not it. If you are interested in this, head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a team management platform built specifically for restaurants. Looking to make your life easier? Then Seven Shifts is your secret weapon to better understand your restaurant, hit labor targets, and keep your entire team connected. With drag and drop scheduling, in-app communication, task management, tip management, and more, it makes restaurant work a lot easier easier. In fact, I haven't come across a restaurant tour using seven shifts that hasn't been completely satisfied. Restaurant Unstoppable listeners get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.sevenshifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven S H I F T S dot com slash unstoppable to get Three months free and join over 30,000 restaurants using seven shifts today. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, co-owner and co-founder of Smoked Barbecue, Barry Sorkin. Barry, my man, are you feeling unstoppable today? Always. Yes, Always unstoppable. Man. I know. And uh, man, we, found, we made this happen. We were trying to connect earlier in the week. We weren't able to happen. We weren't able to make it happen, but we're here now. I'm super excited to dive into your story and to find out how you got to where you are today. But let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? 
Well, you know, I'm not really big on mantras. Um, in this business, we just sort of take, you know, every day, one day at a time. And I don't think there's any one solution or mantra that <laughs> that's universally applicable. So uh, we just sort of take it as it comes. That is a great mantra, though, in itself. It's just day by day. You like, you know, just keep showing up. Keep And, and, and every day is going to be different. Would you right. agree? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's one of the things about this business. Yeah. It's like you never get bored. You yeah. just can't get bored in this business. Don't get upset if it doesn't go according to plan. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> For sure. Awesome way to get this thing started. And I do want to give a little tip to the hat or tip of the hat to Amy Mills, uh, the co-owner of 17th Street Barbecue. Uh, she called you out. She said, you got to get Barry on the show. That's why we're here. And I, and I just can't wait to dive in. So where does it make sense to start sharing your story? Because it's not like you knew this is what you're going to do for like your entire life right right yeah you know i'm not i'm not sure where to start either other than you know i can tell you i worked in a couple of restaurants when i was in my 20s and um (laughs) the the experience i had doing that was sort of what led me to go back to college and run as far away from this business as i possibly could so did you have a bad experience early on um you know I, i found myself waiting tables um like a lot of people in their 20s trying to just sort of make ends meet and you know i didn't really have at the time, I don't think any notion of what this business was really about. I'd eaten in restaurants, mm-hmm. you know, but never really thought about what went on behind the scenes and what it was like to work in one. Um, and I, I think I just found the actual experience of being, you know, on the other side of the table, so to speak, you know, a little jarring. So um, the serving side. Of the, the serving table. side, yeah. yeah. So what were you doing? What were the roles you, were, you played when you were working in restaurants in your 20s? Um, so... Actually, now that, you say, now that you say that, that wasn't actually my first experience. When I was about 16, I did work behind the deli counter of uh, a kosher deli near where I grew up. But that was high school, and that was, you know, I think I just had a different mindset. But in my 20s, I started out um, working at a, as a, uh, first a, a bartender at a Red Lobster, uh, and then eventually waiting tables there. And actually, I did dabble just a little bit in management there for uh, a couple of months, and that was about all I could take. Yeah. Well, it's a different model that you have here. You're not a full-service restaurant. Correct me if I'm right, wrong. Right, right. Uh, order at the counter. Uh, they drop the food off, right? Yeah, so it's, it's kind really of fast, fast casual. Yeah. yeah, it's sort of a – you know, sometimes we'll drop it off. Sometimes people come pick it up. It's yeah. a little bit of both. It's a yeah. pretty casual place. I mean, you can get away with a lot of sort of informality in a barbecue joint. So what was it about the like the Red Lobster type experience where it's a full ser- full service, you're a bartender, you're a lot more hands-on as far as – not to say you don't serve people here, but as far as the service style goes, a little bit more hands-on, a little more uh, – like, I don't know – Steps of service, right? Yeah. I mean, I think I sort of learned like what was behind, you know, behind the scenes of service. You know, we all, we all know what it feels like to go to a restaurant. Um, but until you've waited on people and until you've had to um, answer to managers who are like looking at like how long did it take you to greet that table? How long did you get your, you know, how long before they got their drinks? How long before they got their appetizers? How long before you cleared the plates? Like people don't think about like the minutia that goes into oh, what yeah. you end up experiencing as a guest. It's yeah. Like it just feels... When it goes well, it just feels seamless. Yeah, and it can be overwhelming at first if, if yes. you're not used to that environment. But before long, it becomes just habit. You're like, somebody walks in, if this, then that. Because it's repeat, yes. rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. So somebody sits down, two minutes, you know, or not. Right. Two minutes is a little bit on the long side. Two minutes feels like 10 minutes when you're a guest sometimes. Yes. Uh, but what was it specifically, if you think, because you said you ran away from it. Yeah. So you didn't really like it that much early on. But what, get, can, you, can you kind of try to distill that? Yeah, I mean, it's a long time ago now, but I remember feeling like this is just horrible work. 
You know, it's 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 thankless. I mean, yeah, of course, you get customers that appreciate you and that you enjoy. And you know, some of the restaurants that I worked at, I don't think were particularly great restaurants. I think I wasn't um, going to say it. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, you know, I don't think you know, I, I I've already made the mistake of throwing names out, but you know, I, I just don't think people think of that place or some of the places I worked at in my 20s and think this yeah. is where you go for a great experience. I mean, I wouldn't say, I, I kind of feel like it's the, the type of, and I, I, must, I might sound like an asshole saying this, but I think that those types of restaurants don't attract the best clientele. Right. <laughs> Maybe ungrateful. I'm you glad know? you said it. Yeah. <laughs> and so like you're, you're kind of working with people who maybe aren't taking you as graciously as they should, right? Yeah, and, and it works both ways. I mean, I don't think those places are delivering a great experience, yeah. and, I don't, I don't, and I think people pick up on that. Yeah. And so, like, you're, you're already going into the battle, you know, yeah. Yeah. On, the, on the losing side. Exactly. So I just found it very difficult. I didn't like, you know, the, I didn't like the, the fact that I was having to answer for problems that weren't necessarily the result of anything I did, yeah. but I was still the face of those problems. You yeah. know? And and I, so, I think there's something else to be said, too. When you're a giant corporation, I think people tend to walk over because they look at you as an extension of that corporation, and it's less... I think it's more transactional sometimes. Yes. It, it, it's transactional, but there's also an expectation of, you know, of, of, uh, of a perfect experience. Yeah. And when you're working for a company that routinely doesn't deliver that... You're just, you know, you just call it walking behind the elephant. You know, that's, yeah. you're, you're just you're just picking up the mess. Yeah. And I am going to backstep a little, backpedal a little bit and say I am generalizing right now. There are yes. some great big organizations Absolutely. out there that have amazing reputations and that, that beyond my comprehension sometimes are able to scale that level of con- culture and it's so impressive what they do yeah uh, so it's not everybody but i am generalizing i will say that in right. case you're listening to this and shaking your head i mean being, that's not all of us you know right well and i'll make my disclaimers too it's like yeah. i'm i'm you know right now remembering my perception of these places in my 20s yeah. and you know there's a whole lot in my 20s i didn't understand and didn't know there's a whole lot about the industry that was different when you were in your trend when you were in your 20s not to date you but i'm assuming yes. that was like I mean, if you open this in 2006, yeah. that was at least 16 years ago. Yeah. So, you know, this is like the 90s. It's I'm more assuming. than that. <laughs> yeah. So, like, this is the, your experience. I'm working in restaurants, I'm assuming, was in the 90s. And I think that even yep. corporations have come a long way since then. Yes. I think yeah. that's absolutely true. Yeah. I think that's absolutely true. And, and I mean, listen, this, this industry's changed in the last six months. And so, yeah. <laughs> so, like, look, going back 30 years, yeah, I mean, it was a different world for sure. So, is there any... Is, is it worth hovering here over any experiences you had as far as how you evolved and transformed as a professional? Um, you know, I think what I did learn from, from a place like that, and, you know, there were, I, there's a lot, to, a lot to be taken away in terms of how not to operate a restaurant. But I think what a lot of those places don't necessarily know or don't do well when it comes to outstanding food and outstanding service, they do incredibly well when it comes to systems and processes. And so what I learned... Even even back then, from places like that, is that you know restaurants are just not they don't operate purely on the collective skill of the people that work there. They work they they operate on systems and processes. And the real goal is to not require people with tremendous amounts of skill, because you can't collect you 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 you, you, you for a variety a variety of reasons. One of which is there are only so many of those people out there, and they periodically leave and go find other jobs. And so yeah. you need to find, you need to build a restaurant that 
can continue to operate at the same level, irrespective of who's getting slotted into those positions. Absolutely. I say it all the time. And this is a quote from David Scott Peter from uh, David Scott Peters Consulting. And he, what he says is, you, you need to create system-dependent organizations, yes. not people-dependent organizations. That's not to say you don't also have to depend on people generally. In a sense, you need to put good people into those systems, yes. right? You can't take you know jerks and put them into the systems right. and expect a good result, right? So you, you do need good people, but they don't need to have any experience. You, you can put them through that, that system and, and lean on those systems. Good people in good systems, right? Yes. Yeah, I love that. Um, so you... What was your goal when you were younger? Like, were you just trying to like get security and IT? Because you were in IT before opening this, right? Yeah. So when I decided I didn't ever want to work in another restaurant as long as I lived, I went back to college. I majored in journalism, um, uh, and I majored in journalism. Man after my own heart. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> at the time it was print journalism. Back when we had print journalism. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and you know, really, I was majoring in journalism because the only class I was ever good at in high school was writing class. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, all right, well, this is what I'm good at. This is what I should study. This is what I should major in. And I'm, I'm abbreviating the story a little bit. I actually majored in lots of other things before I finally settled on that. But um, I really just wanted to become a good writer. And I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do with it. And at the time, we didn't have an internet, again, dating myself. But um, so if you wanted to get started in journalism, I mean, you had to do so by going and you know working for a small town newspaper writing obituaries yeah. and that was sort of how you got your foot in the door and i wasn't sure i quite had the stomach for it in a lot of ways and just you know i, I just i know myself well enough to know i don't have that kind of patience and i've watched enough movies dated in the 90s than about with journalism to know it's a cut it's a cutthroat industry yes yeah yes in what ways um, well, I don't know because I never actually worked in it, but, I, but, but you know, that was sort of what always kept me away from it. So I have this degree now in, in journalism. When did you graduate? I graduate, graduated. I sort of took the long route through okay. college. Um, I had gone to school before my restaurant experience, um, before my 20s, or, and then left school for a couple of years, worked in restaurants, and then eventually went back. So I graduated uh, in 96. But I graduated high school in 88, so it. it was a longer... You know, I, I kind of encourage people to take time away from school because who your frontal cor- your prefrontal cortex doesn't finish evolving until you're like 25, 26 years old, yes. and we're making lifelong decisions when we're 18 years old. It doesn't make any sense. You don't know yourself at right. that age. You don't know what you want to do with the rest of your life at that age. And maybe when, you know, in the 90s and 80s when it, you could go to school for $20,000, you know, and like that's a lot of money back then. Uh, but now it's like I literally spent $200,000 on my education. I know. You know, you, you can bury yourself early on and, and make it hard for yourself to have options if you get yourself into debt that young, right? Yes. I, I'm going, I'm living this right now because I yeah. have a son who's um, a senior and um, he's one of these rare kids who knows exactly what he wants to do. Yeah. And he wants to study music and play jazz. And yeah. that's great. So he's got, he's got his direction and he's all good. I have, a, I have a daughter who is 15. so She's a sophomore and still figuring it out. And yeah. I, I've said this, this to her also. It's like, you know, it's crazy that you have to make these critical decisions at this age. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. You don't really figure out who you are until you've pushed yourself into right. really hard positions where you're forced to figure out what you're made of. Right. Right. And it's through those, it exactly. Yeah. It's through those experiences that help give, give you that clarity. So if you're listening to this and you're on the younger side and you're thinking you might want to go to culinary school, 
there are op- there are benefits to it. You get great networking. Maybe go work in a restaurant for a year or two first and figure out if it's really what you want to do. For sure. Uh, so you ended up in IT though, right? So how did you find yourself in IT? So I graduated with this degree in journalism and I found a job working for an IT consulting company um, in their marketing department. So I was writing consultants' resumes and press releases and you know marketing junk materials, things like that. Um, and that led to getting on a project as a tech writer and that led to becoming a project manager and then project director. And suddenly I was living this corporate life that I had never really sought out. And I was like, you know, seven years in, I'm like, how did I, how did I get here? What, what the hell am I doing? What exactly yeah. were you doing before this though? Were you like helping implement technology for corporations? I was, I was managing projects and managing accounts for a company that did those things. So I was never a techie. Okay. Um, what do you was, mean by managing accounts for so, I mean, it, was, it, it, wasn't, quite, it wasn't sales because I was never going in and making cold calls trying to sell new business. Yeah. But I would, I would get um, installed at the client site of existing clients and just sort of manage the relationship. What kind of clients would you have? Um, one of my clients was uh, R.R. Donnelly. Um, What's that? R.R. Donnelly was uh, back when we had printing. It was a big printing company. They used to print the yellow pages back when we had that. Okay. Um, wow, I've been dating myself like 37 times already. I was listening to a bunch of old hip-hop this week driving around. They're saying things like, I'm like, wow, like this era of hip-hop is so specific that things are rapping about that unless you were alive in that 10-year period, like you have no idea right. what people right. are, are talking about. It's kind of funny how the world is changing so fast. Like you listen to music from like 40 years ago and beyond and like we kind of understand it but yes. there's this weird period in like the 90s and early 2000s like there was one song that mentioned like a all i got was like the busy signal and like i feel i feel like a 10 year old or a 15 year old listening to that I'd be like what the fuck's a busy signal? right right <laughs> you know like yeah. what's that anyway yeah no i, I acknowledge that like you know probably half your listeners don't know what the hell i'm talking about so <laughs> it's all good like, if you're good with it i am so you're, you're managing these accounts, uh, you're, you have technology solutions for these accounts, and you're basically just saying, hey, how can we be of service? What do you need? Yeah, I mean, my company kind of evolved. The company I was working for, they, were, um, they got started in, like, they were, they were like on the cutting edge of technology in 1969. You know, they were like a consulting firm before there was such a thing. And it was just this collection of like really, really smart techies from most of them, University of Chicago. That kind of got together to be this sort of like think tank of like technical was you know eggheads and um, and they just found companies that needed stuff done and yeah. at the time like that's how technology was bought and sold mm-hmm. but the industry of course evolved and became more you know vertical based and like there were like financial services specialty technology companies and like it was well, it was much more focused and then there was a, a much greater focus on like. Um, off-the-shelf solutions that were then customized versus like building software from scratch. And so my company, the company I was working with sort of struggled to evolve through that. They had some great clients. They had did some really big projects and really important work, but um, they sort of lost their identity. And, and so um, by the time I got into account management, they had sort of evolved into doing um, the biggest part of their business at the time was tech support. And so they were managing help desks. And so implementing third-party um, help desk operations that would like, yeah. you know, man, that, that would, that would um, field calls from their this co- company's employees from around the world and help them figure out how to get in their email and yeah. how to, you know, reboot their computer and silly things like that. Got it, got it. Do you think there's anything from this earlier experience in your professional career that served you to, this, to get started with a restaurant? Well, I mean, I think... First and foremost, I think 
um, one of the things I got to do when I was working for this company was write proposals. And proposals are a lot like business plans. Mm-hmm. And um, the only reason, and I don't, I don't mean to sound like I'm patting myself on the back here, but I, 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 the only reason we were ever able to get a loan for this business is because I think we did a really, really solid business plan. Yeah. Um, what, what elements make a solid business plan? What was, what was it about your plan that was solid? I think, you know, I mean, you can download a, a, a template on the internet for what should go in it. But I think to me, the most important element of the business plan is the thinking, yeah. you know, and the, 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 the willingness to challenge your own ideas and identify potential problems and identify real solutions. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's what it's Take all the about. Nose away. Yeah. I mean, and, and the biggest pitfall I think people fall into when they're writing business plans is that they drink their own Kool-Aid, you know, and it's like you start writing this thing to convince somebody to give you a loan. But you have to remember that the real purpose of it isn't that. The real purpose is to find out whether there's something here or not. To find out whether you've got a good idea or not. Yeah. You know, and, you know, it's difficult because the, the document needs to serve as both, serve both purposes. Yeah. But there's the sort of external use of the document and then there's the internal use of the document. Yeah. And I'm thinking these proposals that you're writing probably had a solid financial section where you're like, this is what it's going to cost, but this is the ROI. Yes. Yeah. And that's really where I think people get hung up on... Uh, writing their business plan is the pro forma. Like, what's it going to cost? What do you expect to make every day? Yes. You know, and like, like a lot of people just guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, in some ways that's all you can do, but yeah. you can make educated guesses. Yeah. Um, and the other thing you can do is not, you know, we always said, do your, do your, um, your sales projections before you do your cost projections. Why is that? Because, once you know what your costs are, you can pretend your sales are going to be anything yeah. to make the plan work. Like you can say, okay, if I know my costs are going to be X, then my sales have to be X times, you know, yeah. or plus 10%. But you never but, worked in a barbecue joint before. No. So you were, you, I'm assuming you were a hobbyist at this point? Yes. When, yes. Were you always cooking barbecue? No, I think, it, I think kind of in my late 20s, I kind of got into it, um, you know, in, in, in some form or another. Like I had a friend who went to... Uh, um, University of Texas in Austin. Yeah. And uh, I had never been down there. I mean, Love I grew Austin. up, Austin's an amazing city. I grew up in Skokie, Illinois at the time, high Jewish population, not tons of barbecue. I mean, I grew up on like Carson's ribs and things like that. But so I, my, my notion of what barbecue was growing up was more like that. This friend of mine, after he'd been away at school, um, was visiting Chicago and he said he wanted to go out for barbecue. So I'm like, I took him to the place that I knew to go for barbecue and he said uh, they don't need brisket on the menu and like brisket to me like wasn't part of the barbecue spectrum because I had never been to Texas I didn't know barbecue Um, is one of those universal words I think it was more universal like 30 20 years ago it was very generic it meant anything from sauce to cooked on fire a grill yeah Yeah. I mean anything (laughs) yeah Um, and so we were yeah we were speaking different languages when it came to barbecue and and I said what do you mean brisket why would there be brisket on a barbecue menu that's like you know, that really it's so thick. Yeah, How would it cook? Chewy, tasteless stuff that my yeah. mom makes for the, the holidays. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he's like, oh, dude, you got to come, come down to Austin. Yeah. And um, a couple of years later, I had the opportunity, and I did. And, I went, and, it, and it was literally a life-changing. It's like, oh, my God, this is... This, this is, is barbecue? This is barbecue. <laughs> yeah. Holy shit. You yeah. know, this was a different, yeah. a different beast for sure. Um, and that's sort of where my love of it began, be, began. And then I started, like, just trying to figure out how to cook at home. And... Uh, you know, it takes a while. You get it wrong a lot. You know, at the time, like we didn't, there wasn't 
in internet. You can go on and find out how to make great brisket trial right now. It's by, you know, cookbooks. Yeah, it's cookbooks and trial and error. That's and right. Did you travel a lot to go to different barbecues? I did. Um, you know, I, I, as much as I could. I mean, I didn't, you know, I, I've heard this like, I, I, I think I've, I've said that I did a lot of traveling to, from various places, and, and that's all true. But I think somehow that, <laughs> that often got characterized as like, I like dropped out of society and went on this great pilgrimage, and <laughs> yeah. it wasn't that at all. Ate it was like for three yeah. months straight. <laughs> right. No, it was more like listen, if I could scrape together a few hundred bucks to buy an airline ticket and take a weekend and you know go eat barbecue in twenty places in Austin, I would do that for a couple of days and then do the same thing in Kansas City. Now, a couple were you of months just later. eating, or did you have the gusto to go up to the pitmaster and be like? How you do this? In some places, I did. Yeah. It depended a little. I mean, I was a little intimidated. I mean, yeah, some of these of guys, you know, yeah, you know, and like, a lot of people. Barbecue can be <laughs> sacrilege sometimes. Like yes. you don't give away your secrets, right? But surprisingly, and I'm seeing this today, the the culture around barbecue, the the level of generosity with information between pitmasters. If you're in, you're in. Like they they spread information like venereal disease, and yeah, <laughs> like, that was a really gross picture. Right. I, I apologize. <laughs> Should not compare venereal disease with food never well, a good idea yeah, right yeah rule number 327 yeah. but you um, know what i'm saying like i'm always so surprised by how like generous and liberal people are in the barbecue world with their secrets i think there's a couple of reasons one is that i mean for all the sort of like you know trash talk about secrets and yeah. you know i've got the best secret and all that you know the truth is they're dying to tell you why is they're that? dying to tell you what they're because they're proud of it yeah you it's know their passion. They, they love what they do and they, it's like they want to show you how they do their magic and, yeah and they and, figured it out and it it, it it changed the game for them that they can be that for somebody else right i think of like aaron franklin particularly like i yeah. cause i lived in austin for like six months total of six months hmm. i never went to franklin barbecue because i didn't want to wait in that line yeah and um i think um, you're probably gonna like hate me after i say this i think there's great barbecue, but there's a lot of great barbecue places, and you don't need to stand in a two-hour long, right? Or, uh, not even like six hours sometimes, right. like to get barbecue. I don't think it's necessary. Yeah, but maybe there's a lot of people here who disagree. With well, this. I mean, I've waited in that line, and yeah. I can, you know, I can tell you as like a guy who's studying barbecue, you have to, you have to yeah. wait in that line. You have yeah. to try it. You have to yeah. see what that you need is. The perspective. If you're, um, if you're opening a barbecue joint, definitely get the stand in the line. Yeah, yeah. But if you're just going for lunch, and there's two hours there, and like six blocks away there's like Micklethwaite quality meats and there's no way it's like yeah no brainer yeah you know yeah. Like I'm right there with you yeah so where I'm going with this is back to where we started with pro formas right yeah and trying to figure out what's going to cost like you're saying you just kind of take a guess as to like what did you think you were going to need like what like what were you factoring in and how did you know what to factor in so a couple questions so there's there's two one question is how do you estimate your sales and then the other question it sounds like you're alluding to is like what do you need to start the restaurant? Yeah. And we could let, those are two totally different things. So let me just separate them. Um, in terms of coming up with your sales number, you know, we did a lot of things. Um, and still it's a guess. And I want to be clear about that. There's no, you know, alchemy that is going to give you a crystal ball number that you can rely upon. You have to recognize that what you're making are a lot of assumptions. Um, but what we did is we went and stood out in front of the restaurants of other barbecue places. And I just counted the number of people that went in. Yeah. Um, and I don't know whether that person is ordering for one person or six people. But was, you, was that in Chicago? Yeah. Got it. But yeah. There, so there were a few places. Yeah. Um, you know, there wasn't a ton of barbecue here, but there were a handful of places that were trying to do some version of barbecue. Some of them are still around. Some of them aren't. But 
I stood in front of all of them. And, you know, not just one day. I did it, you know, I did it on a Saturday. I did it on a Tuesday. I did it on lunch. I did it for dinner. And so you have to really collect this data. And, you, you know, there's nothing that's going to give you hard numbers. But you can start to get a feel for what traffic flows look like. Yeah. Um, I, gotta, I think the cops are coming in here right now. And I'm thinking I'm derailing <laughs> right now. But the last time I was here, there were cops. Do you guys have, like, a deal with, like, the Chicago PD or something? Or they no, just love you know, you that we, we've, always, we've always been, uh, you know, we used to say we're the safest place in the city to eat lunch. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, we've always had a great, a great. I'm, gonna, um, I'm just assuming they're about to walk through that door. Well, right? I'm hoping they're here to eat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. That's that's a better case scenario. Sorry to interrupt. So you're you're paying attention. You're, you're just counting, literally tallying the, the number of people that are walking in. Um, are you talking to the owners and being like, "What are you doing?" No, I don't think I, I don't think I felt comfortable doing that. I mean, certainly when I went down to Texas, there were some of the pit masters that I got market. a chance to talk to, and you know, yeah, they, you know, yeah, skinny Jewish guy walking, and they don't really see me as much of a threat. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they, but but like you know, here where I sort of felt like I was going to come in to be these people's competition, it would, you know, I would, I would if I were going to ask them, I would want to do it, you know, with full candor and full disclosure and say, listen, opening up a barbecue place, you might if I count your customers, but yeah. it just it just felt like a question I was never comfortable asking, yeah. so I didn't. But I guess one of the things I'm kind of circling around is you don't, you might know how to guess what it's like, what what your sales number is going to be, and you can. Did you know about how to like reverse engineering, like do menu engineering? Like, did you know like what it was going to cost you per order? You know, not exactly. I yeah. mean, you know, I mean, there were a lot of things that I knew um, conceptually and intellectually, but didn't quite know how they were going to work in practice. And that was that was a big adjustment. I mean, if there's one thing that we got wrong, it's that like you know everything works on the whiteboard, <laughs> and then you get into reality, and yeah. you know it gets a little bit messier, but. Um, I mean, we, we, you know, I had, I had done enough research to know that, like, yeah, there are other costs besides food costs, and I need to factor those in. Um, but I will tell you that even knowing that, we put, opened up with our prices way, way, way too low. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it took us years to kind of, like, slowly I think that's that the, back to the where it needs to be. the biggest um, reason why restaurants fail. Good restaurants. I'll, I'll correct myself. I think that's the biggest reason why good restaurants fail. Yeah. It's because they're afraid to charge what they're worth. They're afraid yeah. that if they if they ask for what they need, it will be too much and people won't come in. Why is that the wrong mindset? Um, I, well, I mean, it's the wrong mindset because you can't you can't not charge what it costs. You know yeah. what 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 you need. There's a reason yeah. why it costs that. <laughs> yeah, and 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 especially you know, listen, if you think you're opening up your restaurant and you're better than the next guy, you can't expect to be able to price yourself like the next guy because doing it better costs more. You yeah. know, like everything that you're adding to the experience that you're giving your guests, whether it's better quality meat or better quality of service or, you know, all of those things have costs to them. Like none of that is free. Mm -hmm. You're either hiring better people or you are, you know, staffing your restaurant with more people to do different things that other restaurants aren't like all of those things have costs. And so it's like, and you get, when you get, you get this from consumers every once in a while. It's like, yeah, yours is the best. It's really good, but it's a little expensive. It's like, well, you know, yeah. <laughs> that, that's, I mean, that's sort of how it works. And it's not that I'm, it's not that I'm greedy and just want to make more on mine yeah. than they do on theirs. It's that the reason it's good is because I'm spending money on things that maybe they're not. And don't be afraid to change the price if you were wrong, right? If you think that if like, you think this is what I'm gonna, this is what I'm gonna need, you start, you realize that I was wrong. It's gonna be more expensive. Change that price, like figure out to the penny what it's gonna cost you. Labor expenses delivered that, uh, dry goods, cost of goods. Anything, insurance, like what are all, like every penny you spend, what does it cost me per plate to get this out? Yeah. This is what it costs. Okay, now ask yourself, 
what profit do I want to make? What do I, what's the margin I want to make to do this? Yes. Some people will say 10%. Other people will be like, no, I love this. I'll do it for 6%. I would recommend aim for 15 or 20, right? Why not? Yeah. If you're, but, but if you do that, what happens? Well, I mean, you, you have to see where that lands you relative to your competition because in spite of all the things I just said about if you're better than you know, those things cost, you still have to think about how your customers are perceiving it. And, and we are, have been guilty of you know, underpricing relative to our costs for almost the entire time yeah. we've been open. But also bake in your profit from day one. Yes. You know, yes. like make sure you're profitable. Make sure you're taking that profit. Uh, and I think people, we just kind of take what's left over, you know, like if, if right. anything. Well, it, because in, I, th- I think we, we feel compelled to price ourselves similar to our competition. And yeah. so like, you, you know, the, the price for a brisket sandwich is what the price for, you know, the expected price for a brisket sandwich is. So it's yeah. like, well, then you do sort of just take the leftover. Whereas if you build it from the ground up, you may find yourself charging three bucks more than the next guy. And then the question is, do you like do you have the stones to kind of stand there and say, yeah, mine's more expensive and and it's worth it. But and it's a difficult. It's really difficult. It's not just the, the good. It's this. It's everything else around that, too. It's the service. You want to be able to attract onto yourself good people who are going to deliver yep. that service. That's going to take money. Yes. And it's, it's a competitive market out there, you know. But if you want to separate yourself from the rest, you have to ask for the resources to do it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Anything you want to add on to that? Yeah, it's it's funny. This this came up. Um, I remember like there was a period after the pandemic, and we're still going through this, you know, labor shortage right now. Um, and I and I and I've heard people say this about restaurants where that that you know a lot of restaurants were complaining they couldn't hire people and they can't get staff. And I've heard I've heard people respond to that saying, "Well, you need to pay them more." And what I was what I always say to those people is like. I don't decide what I pay my staff. You do yeah. by what you're willing to pay for the sandwich. Yeah. So it's like, you know, the, the money doesn't come from me. It comes from you. And so how much are you willing to pay yeah. my staff? And I think that's, we usually end uh, the, the conversation on this, 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 what you're discussing right now. And I think it's like the mission statement is to inspire, empower and transform the, the industry. And when I say transform, it's like, how do we go into the, the future intentionally? How do we go from a reactive place of like, oh, I need to do this. Oh, I need to do this because it's usually fear-based, right? But how do we turn around? It's usually fear-based. We're reacting to the consumer, right? But at what point do we turn around to the consumer and we say enough? You know, like this is what we need from you yeah. to, to, to deliver what you want from us. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, a, it's really tough. And I, I, part of the reason I think it's tough in this business in particular is that we are in the hospitality business, which is by definition customer focused. And so we are, you know, for those of us who've been doing this a long time, there's just this, just this irresistible temptation to just sort of take whatever the customer is demanding of you and do it. That's the business we're in. Um, and even if they're not overtly demanding it, what you're perceiving that they demand of you. And so we start with this mindset that it starts with them, not us. Mm. And that's not, it's not the wrong way to think about your business, but you have to think about both sides of it. And it's very difficult to, um, for, for, for certain things like hospitality and the way you interact your, with your customers, have that customer focused mindset. But on things that are more business side start with start from the ground up with your cost and say this is what i need to demand of my customers yeah. it's difficult it's yeah. really difficult um so man I'm, I'm really enjoying the conversation um i want to start talking about actually like opening the restaurant we haven't even gone to the point yeah. where you're actually opening the restaurant right uh so w- when did you take the leap of faith so it would have been 
we opened in December of 2006. And so it would have been 2005 that I quit my job. A very long conversation with my wife and said, "Hey, this, got this idea." How'd that go? <laughs> um, she was great. I, you know, there was a long pause after I <laughs> after I suggested it. Um, <clears throat> we had just had our first kid, and uh, you know, I was you know it's one of those moments in life where you start. He's to, eighteen now. And he's about to go to school for music. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Exactly. It's crazy. Um, and I so like I was at this. You know, it's one of those moments where it's like you just have your first kid, and it's like, okay, I am now. I feel like I'm starting to get on the course that I'm going to be staying on for the rest of my life. And yeah. so it's like, and, and, and that may not be true. That's how it feels in that moment. It's like, okay, you know, all, all of the events that are starting to determine the rest of your life are starting to take root. Mm. And so it, I think there's this, this natural point of like reexamining, like, I'm not sure this is where I want to be working in, you know, 15 years when I'm sending my son off to jazz school. Like this, <laughs> this isn't where I, what I want to be doing. Yeah. And I had always had this, you know, this, this sort of love-hate relationship with the restaurants I, that, I, that I worked at. And I thought I'd gotten pretty good at barbecue. And I started to observe that this barbecue that I fell in love with when I went down to Texas didn't really exist here, with the exception of a couple of places that I think were, you know, making an effort. Yeah. Um, but by and large, it just wasn't good barbecue in Chicago. And um, so I, it, was, it was sort of a, you know, a culmination that I, I saw a need. I needed to do something different. I started really hating my job and questioning the path that I was on. And I thought I'd gotten pretty good at making barbecue in my backyard. So I'm like, maybe I'll give this a go. And so I had this long conversation with my wife. um, And bless her heart, she said, I know you don't like what you're doing, you know, but just don't screw it up. (laughs) She might have used slightly stronger language than that. (laughs) Um, And... But she was 100% supportive. And so I got a couple of partners together, two of which I worked with at my old company. And we had always sort of secretly talked about, oh, one of these days we'll get out of this rat race. We'll do this. We'll do that. And, um, and so I went to these guys. And I'm like, all right, was that bullshit? Or are we going to really want to do something different? Because I got an idea. Yeah. And so um, they had the same, similar conversations with their wives. And, uh, and they said, yeah. And so we got a group of five of us together. We pooled whatever you know, resources we had and we got an SBA loan for the rest. So what number did you, did you come up with what, with what you would need to get started? I think, um, I mean, the number changed a lot. I mean, I think we started, I think when I first pitched it to these guys, it was like, you know, back of the envelope, I'm guessing you need a couple hundred grand, Yeah, you know? And um, I think that was our starting point assumption. And then you start doing the legwork and you start yeah. gathering costs and figuring things out and meeting with bankers and, sharing business plans and you know they share their ideas and by the, by the by it was all said and done i think we came to the conclusion that we needed a total of like three hundred and fifty thousand dollars to do this um be a lot tougher to do that today it would be a lot tougher to do that today <laughs> especially in this market with all the shortages i heard yes. some men is like you gotta give up your firstborn to get cement right now or walk yeah. in the refrigerator well and so but even then like we took that to our banker and they said you know what we're going to get this loan approved for you. I would do it for another hundred grand because un- undeniably there are things you've missed. Always. You know, and okay. in the history of the world, better advice has never been given. Than yeah. That, of course. And I would say like, what comes up often in the show is at least 50% because you don't just want to, to know what it's going to take for us to get open. Yes. What's it going to cost for us to get open and then run this place at a loss for six months to a year? Yes. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and I, you know, we can talk about that too yeah. because we had. You know, when we opened, we had at least felt like we were having our doors blown off every single night from day one. Yeah. Still not making any money. 
really? you know, still watching the bank account get smaller. So yeah, we can we can we can get to that. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, Anything we need to cover? Actually, I have a couple of questions before we get into like actually being open. Yeah, four partners, right? Yeah, that must be tough. I would it's imagine t- it's 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 tough, and it's not. I mean, be real careful when you pick your partners. Um, it's like picking a spouse. You know, it's it's not. Except just, you'll see them more. <laughs> <laughs> except you'll see them. Except you'll see them more. Yeah. Um, but some of the same dynamics exist. It's like, you know, it, you need to find people that don't always necessarily agree with you, but with whom you have a great sort of framework and sort of um, way of resolving um, differences of opinion. Because ultimately, in a good partnership, that collective of ideas, of differing ideas, results in better decisions. You know, listen, left to my own devices, I'm going to go off and do a bunch of stupid harebrained things. You know, I may get it right half the time, I may get it wrong half the time, but like, if there are five people that you can get to agree and consensus through the process of debate and exchanging ideas, you're going to be right way more. You know, there are going to be things that the collective group thinks of that any one individual would not have. And that's critically important. It's a mastermind. You know? Yeah, it's, right. it's, the, it's the power of four brains versus one and tapping. Right. And, then, and then when you challenge each other, then the frontal lobe kicks into hyper gear, right? And then yeah. you start really getting creative and like anything's possible at that point. Right. And, and, you know, is there a flip side to it? Of course, decisions take longer. They're yeah. more frustrating. It's you know, you go you and every day you have to be prepared for that sort of battle. But that's but that's the game. You know, well, one thing I'm curious about too is how do you complement each other? Are you all the you know Barry Sorkins or are the are do you all bring different things to the table? We do. Um, you know, what we all had in common is that we all love barbecue. Um, and, and 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 just to, be, to clarify, I have five total partners um, in in smoke. One of them is completely silent. Um, one is semi-silent, and the three of us are more sort of collective. Operating. Yeah. Um, so for big decisions, we get four out of five of us. For we almost almost never need to bring the fifth in because it's a silent, like is it a silent partner? Yeah. Um, but um, I forgot what your question was. <laughs> Just the, the uh, how do you guys complement each other? Like, yeah. Do you have lanes? We do. Um, so um, my partner Chris is very much the detail guy he's very matter of fact he's very much an operations guy he can like look at a problem and see where it's taking place and in his head he's already designed the system to fix it um i'm you know my partner mike and i are um a little more culinary focused a little more on the creative side um i think what what i what i brought was sort of the vision and the idea of what this was and and sort of the baseline here's barbecue here's the kind of barbecue that i've learned how to make let's figure out how to make this um i've also brought you know at the time i was really the only one of us that had any restaurant experience so what whatever i had able was able to learn from red lobster and other other types of places that i worked at um that was really all the restaurant background we had to draw on so then you have the semi-silent partner and does he bring certain assets to the table beyond the financial he does so that's that's my partner al who also happens to be my uncle who i've known my entire life um and he brought was yeah uncles have a trout have have issues staying silent right (laughs) (laughs) they they do um some more than others for sure um what he what he brought was sort of the wisdom of experience he was never in this business but he's been in a lot of businesses and um he brought um what I would call an incredibly healthy degree of skepticism 
um, forced us. It to, is healthy. It's 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 it, it's, it's very healthy. You need someone to poke holes at everything you do. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And that's always been his specialty. In fact, that's what he did for most of his career. He was in the business of evaluating business plans. What a great business partner. In a, in a different industry, of course, but he's his brain is just trained it's to find fault. Yeah. And. Um, so, so he, he was a great sounding board. It was always sort of the thing that like, okay, if you could get Al to agree, we're golden, you know, yeah. then, then, then we're right. Yeah. You know? So you, you raise your money, um, you figure out what it's going to cost. Uh, what, anything else? I mean, any, anything you missed that you would say, I wish I had known this, like any advice for things to consider that are easily overlooked? Um, Man, I mean, the most important detail is the one you don't overlook, or the one yeah. you do overlook, yeah. rather. So, and it's case by case too. A lot of it has to do with the building that you, things just you don't have. You, you have no idea until you blow the wall out, and you're like, "Oh shit!" Right? Yeah. I, th- I think what I would what I would make people aware of, especially if you, people who've never been in this business, is that you know the kitchen you build is going to determine what you're able to produce. And like, I don't think I quite understood that. I think I like maybe intellectually I did, but I guess I didn't really understand that. Like, if you haven't figured out your menu and how you're going to make your mac and cheese or what your process is for your barbecue beans, you really don't know what kind of kitchen to build. Yeah, you know, you don't know whether you need, you know, are you going to do your beans in the smoker? Are you going to do them in a, in a kettle? Well, that makes a difference yeah. because once you build it, it's really hard to to change it. You yeah. know, kitchens are built to accommodate the ki- the, the equipment. That you're planning on putting in them. So if you decide, you know what, instead of you know that salamander, what I really need is a you know big Hobart mixer or a jacketed steam kettle. Well, that needs different plumbing, different electrical, different power, different ventilation. Yeah. And like retrofitting your kitchen to accommodate those kinds of changes is yeah. really really expensive and sometimes not possible. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it, it, the only way you can really get that foresight is by having the experience to know what it's going to take or to hire somebody who had the experience right. to consult. And I mean, you guys didn't hire anybody, did you? No, we didn't. Um, yeah, and not everybody can has the budget for that. So it's just one of those trial and error type things. And, and, and truthfully, I mean, we got a lot right and we got a lot wrong. Yeah. And what did you get wrong? Some of the things that we've gotten wrong, um, I mean, I sure wish I had a grill. Yeah. I don't have a grill. I have smokers. I don't have a hot grill. Like <laughs> yeah. if, I, if I need to put a sear on something, I don't like have a grill. Flat top, huh? Like a flat top, either a flat top or a charbroiler yeah. or something. Like you know, it might be nice to be able to you know change up the sides a little bit. And, yeah, you know, do like a you know a lot of vegetarian request one. Yeah, a grilled portobello mushroom or a grilled you know something. We just don't have the equipment to do that. Though. Yeah, we set up our kitchen to do you know brisket, pork, ribs, chicken. And it does those things really, really well, mm-hmm. but we're, we're, you know, we have some limitations. Got it. Okay. So let's take a break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back to talk about like basically how you did it. Like, it, like you're open. You know, open. let's do it. It is no secret that restaurants have been hit hard over the past few years, which means restaurant owners and their staffs have been working harder than ever before. Trying to meet the demand of in-person hospitality can be a challenge which is why I recommend Pop Menu Answering. Pop Menu Answering turns every restaurant phone call into an opportunity. It uses artificial intelligence to answer the simple questions that are tying up your phone lines like, can I make a reservation or where are you located? And over 50% of restaurant guests are happy to have their questions answered by an automated system. With the Pop Menu platform, you can customize answers for your restaurant and choose the voice your guest hear and even send follow-up links 
links via text message. Pop menu answering picks up your phone 24 7, 365 days a year, allowing you and your team to focus on what matters most your guests prevent lost customers and impress your guests with pop menu answering and for a limited time my listeners can get $100 off their first month plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash unstoppable go now to get $100 off your first month and to learn more about pop menus full collection of tools at popmenu.com slash unstoppable all right, we're back, and now you're open. What was it like, day one? Take us there. So, I mean, it was it was overwhelming in a thousand different ways. Um, you know, we were woefully underprepared. We, you know, you, as, as a startup, I mean, you're you're asking yourself throughout the entire startup startup period: Are people going to show up? Are we going to have any customers? Does anybody care that we're opening? And so, you're you're like, you don't know what to plan for. You know, like, do you hire? 50 people and on the assumption that you're going to have your doors blown off and what do you prep? What do you, how many briskets do you cook that, that yeah. first night? Um, and so we had hired a staff of 12 people thinking two or three of them wouldn't work out. We'd end up with eight or nine. That'll be probably about right, right where we need to be. I mean, we learned within a couple of hours we needed something closer to 30 or 40. Wow. And so we were woefully underprepared. Where were you underserved? Um, in the kitchen. Yeah. I mean, you know, our, most of our diet, most of our operation is kitchen because, as you said, we're sort of fast casual style service. So there's, yeah, we have some people that are working the cash register and busing tables and things like that. But the lion's share of our operation is, you know, prep and the line. That's mm-hmm. that's how we that's how we you know, that's our business. And um, you know what you don't get to do because you know for what most people don't get to do because they don't have the, have the capital for it is in the in the, in the in the pre-opening stages, you never get to cook anything in mass. You know, you've cooked two or three briskets at a time, you know, at home and you've done it. Maybe you tested out the equipment when it showed up, but have you ever loaded up that equipment and put in, you know, 40 briskets and hundred slabs of ribs? And have you ever made a batch of, you know, 30 gallons of beans? And I'm like, like nobody, who can, nobody can afford to do that until you're ready to start selling yeah. it. And so, um, you don't really know what it takes, like labor-wise or, yeah. or, or staffing-wise, to do those things. The is different too. When you start cooking, involved yes, like that. not everything it's scales it. linearly. Exactly. Yeah. When you're making a big thing of, like, say, beans on, I don't know how you're cooking your beans, but say you're you're doing it in a pot, and you have like a ten-gallon pot, like that, or maybe a twenty-gallon pot, like a huge. Sometimes there's some big pots, like yeah, the bottom's going to burn, and the top's going to be cold, right. right? There's like the things that you just don't take into consideration, like things cook differently in yes. volume. Things cook differently at volume, and and so we just didn't we didn't know what to expect. Yeah. So we had our twelve people. We were right; three or four of them didn't work out, and so we ended up with six or seven. But quickly learned that we could not get our doors open at the volume we were doing, even from day one, with just that number of people. And so we were scrambling to you know, <clears throat> I, I'm, I'm jumping around a little bit, but um, we very quickly had to ramp up from about ten people to about thirty people. And we did it in those early stages by working with temp oh, agencies yeah. and like anybody was available. Remember that extra $100,000 they recommended? Yeah, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> there it yeah. goes on labor. It all went to our dishwashers <laughs> yeah, that exactly. we were paying, you know, at yeah. the time, 20 bucks an know, hour. You don't know what you don't know. And right. There's always going to be something that you miss. It's like, that's probably one of the biggest lessons we're taking away from at this point right now. Labor is one of your biggest expenses. Labor is the yeah. second biggest expense yeah. in a restaurant. Yeah, for sure. After, right after, after food. Yeah. And, um, 
But I, but I will say, I mean, there was more to the opening than just, oh, we underestimated. It was like, I'll never forget, like, the, the experience of, like, seeing these dishes that we created that we just, like, were just playing around with. And suddenly people were buying them. Mm. You know, it was like, it was very surreal to see, like, these sort of plated, um, operationalized versions of what we had you know, been playing around with in my backyard and, 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 and tinkering with and tasting and going, oh, man, this is great. To actually seeing it going out on tables and people eating it was just an amazing, amazing experience. So earlier you mentioned that, like, from the, the get-go, you were busy. Yeah. And you still couldn't pay your bills. Right. What, why? What, what, did you, what were you missing? What did you not factor in? Well, for a couple of reasons. Number one, we had way underpriced. Number two, we were paying a lot of contract labor and so instead of it, I think minimum wage at the time was like seven bucks an hour, and we were paying twenty to twenty five for a dishwasher because we were getting them through an agency because we, we needed somebody now because we needed somebody now, and um, you know, keeping good employees requires having good systems in place. I mean, you 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 learn this like like what what frustrates restaurant employees frustrated me when I was when I was one in my twenties was that you know this is chaos. Nobody wants to work amongst in chaos. They, controlled chaos, maybe, but not total chaos. And so while I, you know, my, my experience in my 20s working for chain restaurants, I understood the concept of having processes and procedures in place and things like that. Once we opened, like, none of those things really worked. You know, it was like our, our processes that I designed on the whiteboard didn't mean anything in reality. <laughs> we didn't have you know, the correct systems in place to get people properly trained, to get people, you know, keep people sort of on the same um, on the same page during service. I mean, we just didn't have any of those things in place because you almost can't. Yeah. Like you're just you're starting. You, you can you can imagine what you might do and how things might work, and you could try to train people on those. But until you start selling things and serving things and seeing what the sort of natural um, sort of organic rhythm yeah. of the restaurant is it's just you're gonna get most of that wrong yeah this, it's interesting because I, I there's a scenario where like you think okay like i need to have all my systems in place i need to have these locked in before i ever get open and then there's the opposite of that where you just kind of open and you're like oh crap i need systems i think there's a bounce because you don't want to do you don't have uh what is a uh, paralysis by analysis, right? right. Where you're just where you never start because you're too busy trying to lock in all these systems, and then you open and you're like, oh shit, right? That's not how this is working. Like, so I think there's a a, a minimum like framing systems. Like, this is how we think this is going to work. Yes. Start and just be ready to take whatever you, you, you thought was going to happen and throw it out the window. Right. And like, don't try to like force things into a system that aren't working. Build right. a system around what is working. Yes. So what, what's going through your mind as I'm saying that? Well, I mean, I remember um, I, I, there's a lot. I'm sort of reliving this. Yeah, that's why we do this. Re-experiencing the trauma. Dump it out, yeah. Um, I think, you know, like, we would never really thought about, you know, it, it's one thing to get your initial staff trained. It's another thing to, to figure out that, like, once the train is moving, 
I still need to be able to hire and train staff. And that's another set of systems and processes. So it's like there's a system and process for how you cook your food and how the operation runs. But there's also the administrative processes yeah. for hiring and training. And it's like yeah. we hadn't given the first thought to like hiring someone on the fly. Like once we were open, it was like, let's get these people that we need in the door. Let's get our employees and let's train them. And, and, and we did all those things. But the other thing, we also assumed that we would start out slowly. Yeah. That like we would open our doors. We didn't do a lot of promotion about it. We did get some early press before we opened that was a blessing but also kind of a curse in, in the way things yeah. went the way things transpired um, because it was too much volume because it was too much volume yeah. and, it, and, and in retrospect why I is that a bad thing because nothing's been stress tested like mm. you like these systems that we're talking about they're only theoretical until you've got until you're pumping volume through them yeah. and so like you know, the, in our mind, the way this was going to work is we would open our doors. People would start to trickle in. We would start to learn how to serve barbecue out of this restaurant. You know, we would know. And, and as as it started to ramp up, of course, these systems would, would start to gel and come into place and solidify. And you start to fix, fix the problems as, as they come up. But what ended up happening is literally within a matter of days, we already had a line out the door and no system in place to really accommodate it because we didn't think it was going to happen like that. Yeah. I mean, who, who gets that lucky? Yeah. You know? Well, I think one thing. I mean, I th- I, one thing I was hoping we would uh, address in today's conversation is like, why do you think you were so busy so soon? I think a lot of it was um, right place, right time. I think Chicago was sort of a barbecue town waiting to happen, and um, we just. I think we were just here at the right time yeah. with the with the right idea. Yeah. And, and I don't say that to call myself a genius. I think it was a lot of dumb luck. I think this was happening in a lot of places yes. mid 2000s to like 2010. Yes. We were living in a world where all of a sudden like the people are being exposed to more food than ever, right? And it was real easy to 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 get a unique selling proposition. Yes. It was real easy to do something here that is not being done here but it's being done you know, a, a thousand miles away and you yeah. can go and I can take that here and I can instantaneously have juxtaposition and stand out yes. to, to like be such like how, maybe there are 15 barbecue places in Chicago, but how many of them are doing authentic Southern barbecue? Right? right. So now that's your, that's your unique song proposition. And I think that there was a period where like the, the, the we're almost running out of creative things to do to stand out. Do you, would you agree with that? Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, yes and no. I think people like they, Wanting to stand out is an admirable goal, yeah. but like that doesn't mean you should do the most absurd thing you can come up with, and like just to get attention. Like mm-hmm. it's got to be great, you know. Yeah. You've got to do something that's like that's different in meaningful ways that are useful to people. I think one of the things that helped us is, you know, I think in 2006, I mean, the Food Network was really sort of just kind of getting their stride, and so this idea of cooking as entertainment wasn't new. I mean, of course, Julia Childs had been doing it, and Emeril had been doing it yeah. for a long time, but. Um, it had really hit the mainstream. And so I think people were watching food and people in Chicago were learning about barbecue in Texas in ways that I didn't until, yeah. you know, until I had a friend who went to school there. Yeah. Um, and so I think there was this sort of re- like social media too. And social media, although yeah. that was still you know, early stages of that. 2007. Yeah. Yeah. That's when the, the iPhone came out and like people started right. being able to see that's when Facebook started to really explode too. Yes. Well, Facebook was around, but that's when Facebook and it, like, and like social media yes. collided with mobility yes. and then people just started taking photos of their food. This is more importantly, restaurants started taking photos of their food, yeah, you know, right. and started sharing. So now if you're in Boston, you're not comparing yourself with the, the restaurant down the street. You're comparing yourself with a restaurant in San Francisco. 
Yes. <laughs> so right. like that's right. Instantly, like the bar was raised across yes. the nation. Right. On food. The regionalization disappeared yeah. mm-hmm. almost. The the other thing, very much related to that, is that you know when when twenty years ago, well, more than that now, thirty years ago, the way restaurants grew their reputation. This is one of our, you know, one of the mistakes we made thinking we were going to open slowly is that, you know, you would try a great restaurant, you would tell two friends, they would tell two friends and slowly like it would grow. But now you don't tell two friends, you tell the entire world. You go on Yelp and you write a review or you go on TripAdvisor and you write a review. And so like reputations are made and destroyed in an instant. You know, yeah. it's so rapid mm. and and it's and it and and you have to prepare yourself that for when you're opening, it's like if someone comes in and says something good about it, if, depending on who that person is, There's they got 10,000 followers. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, it's, you, have to, you have to think about that. You're not going to have the slow opening that you wanted to have. So how did you evolve your systems? Um, I wish I could tell you there was like a great method to it, but it was like, all you can do is chip away at the problems. You know, yeah. it's like, here's where things are breaking down. How did we start today's conversation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Nice callback. Yeah. Um, it's literally just like, Every day, you know, like one yeah. percent better every day, and over time, you know, you don't. It's like a, a you don't feel the change, but when you compare yourself to who you were five years ago, you're like, holy shit, look right. how much has changed, right? right? But it's that constant evolution, that constant chipping away. Like, what can be better today? What's broken? How can we advance it? New technology, let's be better, you yeah. know. So that it's it's, and I think it can be overwhelming, you yeah. know. But just how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. Um, so the other thing that you mentioned that I want to dive into is menu engineering. You weren't charging enough. Yeah. Did you just not, like, what, what were you doing wrong? Knowing what you know now about how to charge or how to create a menu and menu engineer and price a menu, what weren't you doing then? Well, we just, I, th- I think the main thing that we got wrong is the cost of labor. I mean, as I yeah. said, I thought we were going to be able to get by with 10 people. We needed 30. That's a lot more expensive, you know? And so, like, that alone is, you know, required higher menu prices. Yeah. But there are also a thousand little things that you don't think about. What's the cost of, you know, cleaning out the grease trap and how frequently do you have to have that done? What's the cost of the CO2 and the beverages? What's the cost of, you know, I mean, there, there are a million, a million like small things in a restaurant that collect, that, that don't seem like much in and of themselves, but collectively wind up being, you know, 10% of your budget. Yeah. And so it, it, it very much is, you know, I used to make fun of people like this and, and now I finally get it. We used to, I used to work at a restaurant and there was a, uh, a, a partner in that restaurant. We used to make fun of them that if there was a guy who knew the cost of a grain of salt, it was that guy. Because yeah. he would run around like <laughs> quoting prices and everything. You know, but that straw that you just threw away cost yeah. and we'd be like, just, you know, yeah. come on, get out of it. You know, you know, I think the other two thing too is people start purchasing things and they add things to their, their operational expense yes. and they don't change the cost. Right. So that creeps over time. Like, oh, we should start offering straws. We forgot the, the factory yes. straws. Oh, what, yeah, covers for, you know, like like little things to start to like chip away. Like, oh, I didn't think about that. Yeah. But we never adjust the price accordingly. Right. Because one, I think more so in the past, like you, you create like your menu board, right? On the wall, like you spend $2,000, $5,000 to have a beautiful menu on the wall with fixed rates. Right. And you're like, damn it. <laughs> I know. <laughs> like, but today... What's kind of cool is that so much is digital. Yeah. So like something changes, go into the system, boop. Yeah. And I think that's a real powerful thing. And it's a good excuse. It's a good, it's an, um, there's no longer an excuse. That's no like, oh, like I don't want to print out all these menus anymore with QR codes. You right. Know? 
I think there's things that we can leverage today to, to give us more flexibility and mobile, mo, uh, mobile, mobility. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you know what I'm saying? What, what's going through your mind? Well, and there, and there are back office systems now, too, yeah. that you know, used to be only available to the larger change because mm-hmm. they were so expensive to exactly. acquire, but everything is cloud-based now. And so like, you know, small independents can now use some of the same kinds of tool sets that, that restaurant chains can use that really that you can look at the cost of any menu item in real time based on your last set of purchases, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's like, if you're not watching that, that's on you because the data is there. Yeah. Um, so one of the things we like to focus on, I, I like to use the analogy of like shifting gears, right, in a car. First gear was getting open. Second gear was realizing that, you know, you're understaffed and that you need to change your prices and that you need systems. Third gear, you know, what's, what's third gear, what's fourth gear, and if we're in a five gear, you know what I'm saying? Like, what were those evolutionary mm. changes for you as you were growing? That's a great that, question. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know that ours are representative, um, and I don't know that we shifted at the proper times, but I can tell you that for most of first, second, and third gear, we were still trying to keep up with, with volume. Yeah. And then we, you had Triple D come in. We had Triple Well, so he, they came, <laughs> it was about. I think when they came and filmed, it was six months after we'd opened. Oh, my God. So we were still brand new. Um, and Guy even referenced that when he was here. He came out and he said, I got to tell you, I didn't want to come here. Like after, after we were done shooting, he pulled me aside. He said, I didn't want to come here because I've been to new restaurants before. And, and you bury him. And, and, and they, they, they either don't know what they're doing and can't get through the shoot properly oh, really? or they can't handle the business that comes, comes their way. Yeah. And so he was, he, he was very can- candid about that. Yeah. But he said, you know, he, he was very complimentary. He said, we seem to have our act together and, yeah. you know, really enjoy what he had here and, and what we did. But so when, but when that aired, we were only nine months old and we were already kind of be behind the eight ball on volume. Like we just couldn't keep up. We were like filling our smoker to capacity every single day and selling out by four or five o'clock in the afternoon. And, you know, how great is that, though? I mean, it was great. <laughs> yes. I mean, of course, like these are the problems you dream of having. Yeah. Um, At what point did you become profitable? Uh, second year. Okay. Our wow. second year. It took us a full year. Um, what were you doing differently in the second year that you weren't doing? Like, what were the things that you had that you started doing to make you profitable? Well, I mean, some of these I'm a little embarrassed to admit because we weren't doing fundamental things that we Well, that's knew why we, you're here because so yeah. many people make these mistakes. We're trying yeah. to help those people to not make those mistakes. When we, we, we did not, we were not doing any accounting of any kind for the first year. When it came time to do our taxes, we had to figure out how to put that shit together. <laughs> it, was yeah. like, it was like, how do we, how do we collect? We just, what do we owe? It wasn't right? that we didn't know that we were supposed to. And it wasn't that we didn't know how it was that we were so overwhelmed with like keeping this place from just getting crushed under its own weight that we just didn't have any bandwidth for it. We were, we were, I'm guilty of that when I was starting the podcast, even though I wasn't making a lot of money and I was, I mean, it's not a ton. I'm not going to compare the amount of work that has to happen to run a podcast to running a restaurant. I can do it by myself. Not many restaurants can say that. Right. Right. But when you're working a full-time job and also trying to run the podcast and, you know, yeah. you have so many things going on, like, you just, yeah, it gets away from you, you know? Like, in the, before you know it, you're like, was I putting money away for that? Like, what do I owe? Um, but what did you start doing differently? So, after the first year, number one, I had... So, originally when we opened, I was going to be the operator. My other two operating partners are, were now my operating partners. Mike and Chris. Mike and Chris. They were going to keep their full-time jobs um, and maybe help out on weekends. And... I sort of just raised my hand and I said, I, I can't do this on my own. Yeah. I need help. And yeah. so they quit their jobs. Um, they came and started doing it full time. Chris, who is this opera, has an operational mind, which I do not have. Um, 
really, you know, kind of late in the year, started picking up some of the pieces that we had let fall on the floor while we were just trying to keep people fed. And, um, I mean, it took them some time to kind of You're get You're not feeding up. pieces of meat that fell on the floor. No, no, no. <laughs> Sorry. Making sure that's clear Piece, yeah, pieces of the business, to be clear. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Um, so, and so, like, it, it took him several months after coming on board to sort of get his arms around what was going on here and, like, bringing some order to this chaos that, you know, that we had let come, yeah. out, come out of this. And, you know, I, 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 we, I, I, I'm not trying to, like, shirk fault for that. That's 100% on me. But I look back and I go, like, the way we had set ourselves up, there was no way it could have gone any other direction. Yeah. It was like we just were not prepared. I think we had, we had bought QuickBooks. We had installed QuickBooks. We had set up a chart of accounts in QuickBooks, and we were ready to go. <laughs> but, like, but that doesn't like, – but, like, but I had never used yeah. QuickBooks. I'd I mean, never been a – you know. So do you have an accountant now? Yes. Well, when did you get an accountant? Um, we had one ostensibly then. Yeah. But, like, we hadn't – I didn't know enough to sort of – negotiate with them or discuss with them sort of how does this work on an ongoing basis like what about a bookkeeper um, we did not have one we have one in house now I would and these things seem like expenses that are out of reach for most people that are just getting started but for all the reasons you just listed yeah you need to start I, I would say if you're opening a restaurant day one have an accountant and a bookkeeper because what's going to happen is what you just spelled out. You're going to be so overwhelmed. You're going to underestimate the amount of work it is. And that stuff is just going to go fall to the wayside. Right. Um, and again, back to the earlier conversation, you think it's going to cost you $500,000 to open a restaurant? Get a million because you're going to have to get use that loan to pay your accountant and, yes. and your bookkeeper. Yes. And I would say the other thing that you need is a lawyer. Yes. Did you have a lawyer? We did. We did. Uh, um, well, my, my, my fifth silent partner was our attorney at the and time. You can be strategic with your partners too. Yeah. Like if you can yeah. bring on a, an accountant, that's a partner and a lawyer. Like that's get creative with it, right? Yes. yes. Uh, but the the only other thing I want to mention that I, was a, 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 a lifesaver for me personally, and I, it's something that I recommend everybody who opens a restaurant do. Uh, use Profit First. The Profit. Have you ever heard of Profit First? No. It's a it's a cash flow management system, hmm. and it's literally just and it's exactly that. If you make a dollar. You take 10 cents of that and you put it in a profit account. Mm. You have five accounts. If you're a restaurant, you have six accounts. Um, you have an income account. All the money that you make goes into your income account. And then you have a, a, a profit account. You take your profit. Every you know, every 10 cents on a dollar goes into that account. So you're, you're making sure you're making money. Then there's owner's pay on top of that because mm-hmm. you're paying yourself. That's whatever you, you want it to be, 20%, 15%, whatever. And then you have... Uh, operational expenses, and then you have taxes, and then if you're a restaurant, meals tax. But you can combine that. So basically, on every dollar you make, you allocate the cash, and every hmm. one of those elements has its own checking account. So it's like the envelope system, but you're right, using checking right. accounts. So now, on every dollar you make, you're taking twenty five. If, if you know sales tax is like right, right around eight percent, right? I think it's different in different states, right? So yeah, um, you just you take your tax and your sales tax. Or your meals tax, you combine that, say, th- put 30% away, right? So now you might not know exactly what you owe, but you got a checking account that has just been accruing cash. So you, you have something there. Yes. So you're not in a bad position. You know? Right. And if you've done your math right, yeah. then all of this works out. But if you haven't, then some of your vendors are going to say, How come you're not paying me? Yeah. You know, and then you're going to have to pull money out of one of those envelopes. But, exactly. Um, you know, what I would say is, I just want to add on to a point that you made about getting an accountant. 
our problem wasn't that we didn't have an accountant. Our problem was that I didn't understand what they they were supposed to do and what they weren't supposed to do. Like when we hired an accountant, I thought my accounting was just taken care of, mm. but that's not really how it works. So what you, are you supposed to do? So I mean, somebody and you you also alluded to a bookkeeper. There is that separate function that is separate from your accountant who's going to do your taxes and maybe give you some advice yeah. and make sure you're not you know going afoul of any any laws. But, but um, even then, you need to do something for the bookkeeper too, right? Yes, you, you to, still need yeah. exactly. I mean, so so you get a delivery, you get an invoice, AP. What happens next? Yeah. You know, so it's like those are the things we just didn't think about um, until we were already in the thick of it, and then it's like you know I'm too busy trying to figure out how to serve brisket to worry about what to do with that invoice. I'm just going to stuff that invoice in a box somewhere yeah. and just leave it there. And There's hope great I can... tools today to help us with that, to make even make that. Yes. Like margin edge comes to mind. Like you don't have to do manual entry like we used to. You get all of your accounts payable, all of your accounts receivable. Like now you can just literally scan invoices. Yes. And and that, that data gets uploaded and like it's getting easier and easier. There's no excuse really. Right. And those systems are coming, getting less and less expensive and yeah. more accessible, as I said, to independent operators. But even if they are expensive, you can't ask yourself, how much am I spending for this? And you need to say how you need to ask yourself in spending this much money, how much money am I saving? Yes. Right. Because I guarantee you those technologies are less expensive than hiring a person to do it. Yes. Yeah. And and less expensive than not doing it. Or <laughs> or know? less expensive than you doing like yeah, your yeah. time's more valuable than doing that stuff. Yeah. Right. You have to think like that. What's my time worth? What like what can how can I use technology to replace? Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Um anything we haven't discussed up to this point, like as far as your evolution goes, things that you like you just wish you knew then that you know now, that you can just give that foresight to our listeners. Um, you know, I, I think I sort of feel like I went in with pretty open eyes, but what I think what I got wrong was, I mean, there were things that I sort of cognitively understood, but hadn't fully processed. Like, I think, you know, everybody going into the restaurant business knows, okay, the hours are going to be long and the hours are going to be difficult. And they know that, you know, they know that they need to have systems and processes in place. And so, like, I remember writing those words in our business plan, like to show that I knew them, but like it still didn't quite prepare me for the reality of what, what it was actually like to go through that. Like, okay, so what does it really feel like to work, you know, 90 hour work weeks? Like, like do it for a couple of weeks. No, not anymore. Not for, it's been, it's been a while. What's changed? um, I've learned to delegate Mm -hmm. and I've been fortunate to be in a position where we had people that were delegation worthy. Um, It takes time to build those people up though. It takes time to build those people up. And I found that it takes time to get comfortable delegating Um, you know this is this was our baby you know this was like it was always going to be us and for the first probably the first 12 years that we were open there was never a time that we were open for business that one of my partners wasn't here Um, and still that's the case 80% of the time like during during you know busy periods Um, but I mean until you've worked not just one 90 hour work week but 15 consecutive 90 hour work weeks like you just can't really fathom what that what that means and what kind of sacrifices that you know you have to make to do that and you know at the time like we had my my son was two when we opened our doors and so it's you know there was lots of things that I that I missed and that's um, choice I made I have like no regrets but you have to think about those things because are you willing are you willing yeah are you willing and like like really willing like think about like don't think about it in terms of like. How important is this business to me? But how important are other things to me? Yeah, you know, it's like easy to go. Well, I got to put my business first. But like, well, yeah, but there are part points in your life where you put other things first. You yeah. know, 
your son graduates kindergarten or, you know, has a, like a you know, a, a hockey game or a, uh, you know, whatever their thing is, you know, like you, you, you end up missing a lot of those things. And I think that leads to a lot of regret. Yeah, for sure. And I think you, you have to be mentally prepared for that. You know, because you don't know until you know, right? Yeah, and, right. Uh, it's it's something to definitely meditate on and like sit with and like think. Do I do I want to do this? Um, one thing we haven't talked about yet that I think is worth talking about. I got the privilege of being able to walk around. Like like we had scheduled this for last Friday, but wasn't able to work. But we were still able to come in and meet up with your business partner Mike, and he showed us around. And one thing that hasn't come out in today's story yet is you guys have grown a lot since then. Yes. Like, I'm talking like physically, your space has grown a lot. Yeah. Um, talk to us about that and like how, like, how, like, over time, like, you, I think a lot of people will come look at smokes and be like, look at all this stuff they have. They have three barbecue pit, like, the three smokers and all the, you didn't have all this, but you didn't, you, you were a lot smaller footprint when you got open, right? Yes. When so, we opened, we were about 1,800 square feet. Yeah. And what are you today? About 6,000. Wow. Yeah. So um, more than tripled in footprint. Yes. Talk about that natural growth and why that's important. So it all came out of the need for more smoking capacity. I mean, more when we volume. opened, yeah, I mean, we were, like I said, we were doing more volume than we ever thought we were going to do. We had a, we bought one barbecue pit that had a 500 pound capacity and we thought, God, we should be so lucky to need all that. <laughs> um, and then within, you know, a matter of weeks we did. And 500 um, pounds of capacity? Raw weight. How <laughs> much raw weight do you put out now? Um, so, I mean, on a busy night, we can do, you know, close to a couple, couple thousand pounds. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so is that, I'm assuming that helped with the profitability, right? Yes. I mean, volume will mask a lot of sins for yes. sure. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's some things you can't it make a, up in volume, but it, it is a volume game. It's about throughput. And I think yes. that's something like you can only make as much money as you can deliver. Right. Right. So your physical, like your, your, uh, consumer facing footprint hasn't really changed. Right. Correct. But your production footprint yes. has changed considerably. Yeah. So we desperately needed a second smoker and a third smoker mm-hmm. um, and didn't have any more space for one in our 1,800 square feet. And so we waited. We're in a building um, that is now shared by two businesses, but at the time was shared by four businesses. Wow. There were two in the front and two in the back. So there were two businesses um, in the back of our space that didn't have any street-facing uh, linear square footage or linear footage. But... Um, took up about you know, collectively about 40% of the building and um, I kind of heard through the grapevine that one of the, those tenants hadn't been paying their rent and so I just approached the landlord I said you know I, I don't know if it's true I don't want to step on anybody's toes I don't want to get anybody in trouble but like if that's true like we pay ours and we need the space yeah. <laughs> so you know if there's a conversation to be had, let me know. Yeah. I'm not First looking for a refusal, please. <laughs> yeah. I'm not looking to put anybody out on the street. Yeah. But if they put themselves out, we'll yeah. let us know. We'll take over before anybody else. Right. We're, we're a solution to this problem. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so um, that happened. Yeah. And this person, they, they, they got rid of the other tenant and took over. And like first order of business was to, um, it was, it was about, I'm trying to think, it was probably another 1800 square feet or 2000, something like that. And, um, first order of business was get a second smoker. And that was like yep. first and foremost and, um, double your volume. Yeah. But we were also still kind of bleeding money. And so it was like, well, how do we do this build out, you know, and, and acquire this smoker? Well, at least now you have, you don't, you don't have pro, you don't have projections. You have hard numbers. We do. You can go to the bank and say, we're busy. We just need more, like, like we're like, you know, like we need this to be profitable. Yeah. And we didn't, we were fortunate. We didn't have to go to the bank because we hadn't depleted ourselves quite that severely yet. Yeah. Um, and so we were able to purchase another smoker and we were able to, 
we couldn't have we couldn't have afforded to build out this full space and make it all um, you know uh, health department ready, but we did um, just build out like this small little on probably a hundred square feet of of space, and we poked the smoker through like an interior wall so that the only part of the space that needed to be health department ready was that little like tiny place where we were handling food and loading it into the smoker. And so we deferred any other cost of like of, of, of building out or, or making use of even the, the rest of the space until we turned ourselves around a little bit financially. And so that's what we did. We added that second smoker. We doubled our capacity. How long did it take you to get that second smoker? Um, I mean, at the time, I think I, all I had to do was order it. It took a couple of weeks. No, like if you opened in 2006, oh, 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 oh. when did the second smoker come in? It was probably... It was probably somewhere in the third year. Okay. We're in the third year. Yeah. So we've been operating for a little while. Now, were you still selling out at 4 o'clock? Or were you, oh, yeah. So you were doing yeah. twice the amount of volume. Oh, no, no. I'm sorry. When we added the second smoker, we, 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 we were still selling out periodically on weekends. Yeah. But most days we would get through. Okay. Yeah. Um, wh- at what point do you start doing catering? Um, pretty early on. Um, so that's something to factor in. That's part of the reason why you're probably selling out. Right. Yes, catering is a big X factor. I mean, in some ways, it's 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 the bright brightest spot of our business because yeah. it's it's so much easier. Mm. Um, it's, it's predictable. It's, it's it's predictable, and it's stuff that we're already making anyway, and yeah. so it's all just incremental sales. Yeah, um, and you can charge more too. And you can charge more. We've, we've always been pretty sheepish about doing that, yeah. but you're right. You can get yeah. away with charging more. Better if, you're, if you're better operators than we are, you can. Yeah, you, you don't can, need the front of house facing. Like, yeah. So there's, there's fewer variables to, to deliver the end product. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, so you also, I think you have three smokers, though. When we have, that we third have a third now. Uh, shortly after the second one. Okay. Yeah. So that so, probably helped 10x with your. Now you can do yeah. as much barbecue as people can demand, right? And is that Pretty when you really started to be profitable? Yeah, I mean, of course, when you never have to say no to business, that's, yeah. you know, that's, that's nice. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I think what the third smoker really did is really enabled us to let that catering yeah. side of the business, you know, explode, fly yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Um, we started, to answer your earlier question, we started doing some of our early catering in that first year, um, but it was very informal. I mean, it was like, you know, we didn't, I think I had written the words catering in our business plan somewhere, yeah. but like we didn't have a catering operation. We didn't yeah. have a sales team. We didn't have, you know, trucks or equipment or warming boxes. But like a, someone came in and said, Hey, I've got a party coming up. 70 people. Can you do it? And we said, yeah, of course. And, and then they yes. left and we're like, how are we going to do, <laughs> <we> do that? <laughs> how are we going to do that? Yeah. Um, and I'll never forget that first. This was a first event. And we had done some like large sort of like bulk pickups that yeah. you can call them catering or not. But, that first event where it was like we were actually sending a crew on site to serve barbecue at somebody's venue. Um, I'll never forget. I mean, this was it was literally 75 people. Um, it was some it was some sort of fundraising event for um, I don't remember the name of the organization. It was a fundraising event. And I remember we must have had 25 meetings like every couple of days leading up to this event just figuring out how we were going to pull it off and how we were going to do it and I look back and it's like I mean we'll do an event like that in stride now like I won't even be aware that we're that it's on that we have it you know yeah. it's like it's just such a different because you have the uh, systems in place you have because systems before in place. it was dependent on you executing it now you lean on the systems yes. and the people you've hired to execute yeah you There's, delegate it it's funny there was a point I know you met Mike the other day um, there was a point when Mike was like Mike was our catering guy and so he had like a cordless phone um, that was like 
you know, a clip on his back pocket while he, he was one of those guys while he was packing holster phone. <laughs> yeah, no, not, not even a cell phone. Like a, just like, like a cordless phone, like, yeah. a, like a hard, oh, oh. like a, like a landline <laughs> um, a holster <laughs> like with, a, with, a, with a holster on it. And he would have that on his, on his belt while he was packing up other catering orders. Like and the phone would be ringing and he'd be like trying to answer like new catering inquiries while he was packing up current ones. It was, I mean, it was, it was not, I'm not proud of like that, <laughs> about that operation. Um, but we that was sort of how it somewhere. evolved. Yeah, I mean, you got to start by you can't yeah. start by building. Like we weren't in the position. I shouldn't say you can't. We weren't in the position to start by building the organization and then building the business to fill the organization. We had to start by selling stuff and then build the organization around the sales that we'd already had. Yeah. We just didn't have the capital. Yeah. To 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 dig any deeper. Yep. Um, so one thing I just I want to make sure I say it out loud to make sure the listeners are. And maybe just expand upon it a little bit with the idea of when you're selecting a location, if you have plans to scale, if that's the goal, start. I always tell people, start where you can. Don't go for that huge footprint on day one because you might not have cash flow to cover your expense. But if you start where you can, if you start small and you're intentional about where you're starting, if there's if it looks like there's room to blow out walls and take over footprint, yeah. maybe like where the the businesses around you might be struggling a little bit, right. you know, like there's opportunity for growth there and, it, and it, it lets you kind of have that slow organic growth over time. Yes. Which I think is very powerful. Yeah. And I, and I would also add, I mean, this was to your point about starting small. Yeah. We looked at a dozen spaces before we picked this one. This was the biggest yeah. of the spaces we looked at. We were, cause as I said, we didn't know if anyone was going to show yeah. up. And so it's like, there's something to be something to be said for small and full. Mm-hmm. Small and full is a great great way to run a business. Yeah, and you can always if you get the business, you can always find a new location. Yeah, right? um, but I think it's ideal just to keep the location and to blow out walls. Yeah, right? I think that's the best way to do it. Um, you also mentioned delegation. And I want to make sure we can pull a couple lessons from delegation before we start to wrap up today's conversation and go to the speed round. Yeah, um, you know, it's really hard to have a thirty thousand view of your. 30,000 foot view of your business while you're slicing brisket. It just, it's really difficult I and mean, it can't be done, but it's like when you're, you know, if you're out you know, working on the line, cutting lunch, you can't be figuring out where you're going to put your next smoker. You can't be figuring out better ways of, you know, processing, you know, deliveries or yeah. it's like, you can't use all these things you can't think about yeah. when you're, um, when you're, when you're in the thick of like day to day operations that like, Delegation is, is critical. Like, give us some tips about how to properly delegate and effectively delegate. Like, what can you just say? Hey, go do this, or is there more to it than that? No, <laughs> if, if only. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, that's that's actually the first thing I was going to say is you can't just delegate and then wash your hands of it. It's like yeah. you still own the task, even if you've delegated it to somebody, and so. If you've delegated to somebody, it's on you to ensure that it's being done the way you would have done it. So how do you do that? Well, you got to start by finding the right person, and that is no small order. I mean, that is really difficult, especially as an owner. You need to try to find people who care as much about your business as you do. And that really doesn't exist, but that's what you're looking for. Like, So you're looking for as close as you can get to that. You're never going to find an employee, no matter what you're paying them. I heard somewhere that there's three filters you have to put somebody through when you're delegating. One, are they capable of doing it? Two, do they understand the job? Three, do they want the job? Hmm. What's what's going through your mind? As yeah, I mean, I've never heard it put like that, but it's hard to argue with. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, 
So why listening to those three things? And I, I can repeat them if you want me to. But yeah, no. I, the only one I wanted to add, and it's, it's it's certainly probably related to do they want the job, but it's um, are they motivated to do it the way you would do it? Like, yeah. and, and that and that's that's the difficult thing because you can't you can pay people fairly, but you can't motivate them. Like they have motivation has to kind of come from within. You have yeah. these people that 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 in like innately want to do a good job, whatever their job is. And they, and they have an understanding of, of, of the sort of nature of their work relationship with you. And that is, if it doesn't work for them and doesn't work for you, you're going to part ways. But so long as they are in that relationship, they have an interest in doing as, as, as the job as well as they can. And yeah. that's, the, the, to me, the trick in hiring is finding that person. It doesn't mean they're going to work for you forever. It doesn't mean that they're going to be you know, a, a forever employee. But it just means that 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 they they know that when the relationship isn't working for them the solution is to get out of it yeah. and not to do a crappy job mm-hmm. like that that's not that's yeah. not the right way to fix so I think that comes into do they understand what the job is, right? Like yeah. so that's like painting the picture of like this is what I need done and this is what I want it to look like when it's done. Yes. Right? And and this these are the the the, the guidelines i.e. budget, i.e. rules and regulations, the, the confines through which you can do the job, but how you get from where we are now to where I want you to be, yes. that's up to you. Yes. Um, I, one thing that I, I can tell you I've learned, um, and I'm, trying, I'm struggling to figure out the best way to articulate it because it's not applicable at all levels. Like, There's a difference between delegating, wiping down a table, and delegating... You know, being the sort of dining room supervisor. I yeah. mean, you do you you treat both of those delegations differently. Yeah, this um, is where systems come in again, too. It's where systems come in, but systems always there's a, there's a fine line. Like I can do one of two things. If I'm teaching you to do something, I can turn you into a drone and say you do it like this. Don't ask questions. Don't use judgment. Do it like this. Or I can say. Here's what a clean table looks like. Yeah. You figure out how to get from here to clean. Yeah. You know, you, and this is how I do it. This is how I do it. But if you can do it a better way, by all means, let us know. Yes. And yeah. every delegation, you're making a judgment as to where on that continuum you want to be. Because you don't want to tell your people not to think. Yeah. And yet you don't want to tell them to think and make judgments that you don't want them making. And so you have to find, you know, for each position and for each individual there's sort of a right spot on that continuum where you're going to dictate certain things and certain processes and procedures and you're going to allow them to use judgment on other things. And I think the, the reason I think that's important is that you want people who are capable of thinking in important positions and if you don't allow them to think, they're not going to find the job interesting. Yeah. And yeah. so you need to give people just enough freedom where they feel like they feel some sense of ownership for what you're giving them. Yeah, and then you recognize it. And recognize it. Why is that so important? Um, listen, who doesn't like to be complimented, right? Yeah. I mean, we, we're all human. And one of the things that I think is really lacking in the restaurant industry is treating employees with respect. Yes. They are so... It's, it's tragic, but there are so many people that work here, I think, for no other reason and they get treated with respect here and they've been working other places where they don't. And I I just, you know, there's a lot of things as as restaurant operators that financially we can't do for our employees. Respect is free. 
Yeah. And so like there's like you can you can explain why you can't pay a dishwasher thirty dollars an hour. You can explain why you can't pay a line quickness or provide health insurance and all these other things that are difficult to figure out how to do. Respect is free and it's easy. Yeah, man. I'm loving today's conversation. I'm starting to get worried because I, I feel bad. We're taking up two tables right now. The line is building. People are sitting down. I want to make sure you're getting the most out of your, your dining room space. But I do want to make sure we leave time to um, talk about you, you said you have a new project, a new restaurant we do. opening. So do you want to talk about that real quick? Yeah. So we started, you know, we've we've been slow to grow. Um, we did, I think uh, you may have alluded to earlier, we did a food hall downtown that we Didn't opened up. Didn't mention that on the recording, but you do have the food hall. Yeah, we have a yep. food hall um, downtown that we are opened up several there? years ago. Yeah, we are smoking okay. on site there. Um, that was one of our preconditions for doing it. It's like, we're not, we're not selling transported barbecue. Yeah. Um, and so we, have, we actually have a smoker up on the top floor of this high-rise downtown, and we just go up and down freight elevators all day long. It's kind of <laughs> cool. Um, but other than that, we've really been, been like protective of what we've got here and people have come to us a thousand times and said we haven't expanded when are you can open another location and we just haven't just haven't been all that interested in doing why that why not um, you know I feel like part of what makes this special is that there's only one of them yeah um, and I don't want to I'm going to regret saying that at some point we'll probably open another one but yeah. I, I sort of feel like people always say you know you've got such a great brand why don't you open up another one and it's like well there's no guarantee that we'll still have a great brand if yeah. we do that, you yeah. know? And so, like, every time you take your brand yeah. and do something with it, you're putting it at risk. Yeah. Do you have, are you familiar with Ari Weinswag Zingerman's? Oh, huge fan. This is, this is his, his, his uh, sentiment right here. It's like the, every time you recreate something, you dilute it a yeah. little bit. Yeah. And that, that's what I'm hearing from you. Yeah. Um, and so we haven't, done, we haven't done a lot of things, and people have been sort of waiting, wondering why. Um, but about... Four, four years ago or so, um, we started playing around with steaks. And I won't bore you with the detail about why we started playing around with steaks. But um, and I know I'm not the first person who have ever smoked a steak. I don't want to pretend that I am. But through a strange nobody series... Nobody doing of, it in Chicago. What's that? Is it nobody doing it in Chicago. There's nobody doing it in Chicago. Yep. And um, we accidentally found ourselves some, with some strip steaks on hand. And so I put some in the smoker and pulled them out at medium rare and seared it in a cast iron skillet. And I thought... God damn it! That's the, that's the best steak I've ever had. Yeah, and um, and so originally we were going to do it. Um, we were going to kind of make Friday, maybe make Friday night steak night at Smoke. We'll do a special here and there. But the more we played around with it, the more we thought this this, this deserves its own thing. It's really good. Yeah. And nobody's doing it. Yeah, and um, and so we started coming up with this idea for this new kind of steakhouse. And um, you know, the idea behind it is that we've got this different steak, and. We wanted to create a steakhouse that was accessible to people. And steakhouse culture has... And I'm not dissing any of the old school steakhouses. I love them all. They're yeah. great. You know, I go to them when I can afford to. Yeah. But, but, you know, to us, like, eating a steak is such like a, like a primal experience. And, I, and, and it's become sort of steeped in this culture of extravagance and ostentation yeah. and all these things. And it's like... Sometimes that's what you want, but sometimes you just want a great steak. Yeah. And so um, we, we started creating this concept for a different kind of steakhouse that kind of dispenses with all of that yeah. nonsense and, um, and just open? focuses on the steak. So we're no, under construction right now. We're on, we're just What's the goal, I should say? The goal, um, well, the goal, <laughs> it's been a moving target. Um, as it always is. As, as, as of right now, we are anticipating sometime shortly after the first of the year. Beautiful. So we're under construction. Uh, just before I came here to this interview, I was uh, doing a walkthrough with our contractor, nice. and so yeah. So, what's the business model? Um, it's, uh, I mean, it's it's much more full service, um, 
but again, we're trying to strip out like some of the, some of the, um, for lack of a better word, performance around it, and just focus on great hospitality and great food and great value. Beautiful. Um, what has you most excited about this? Um, I'm, you know what, what makes me excited about it is that I've been tasting steak every day for the last four years, and we yeah. had to put this on pause during the pandemic. Yeah. Um, but literally tasting steaks of various types that we've been, you know, playing around with menu items, and I'm still excited about every one of them. Like yeah. I still love this product. I, yeah. Like I'm not not getting sick of it. It's just I think it's unique. I think it's delicious. I think it'll be a great value for people, and I think they're going to find the experience like more in line with what the average person thinks a steakhouse yeah. ought to be. Uh, what's your biggest concern? Um, the biggest concern is that we are um, we're doing some things that are different, and that you know always brings with it a degree of risk. Are people yeah. going to are there enough people out there that agree with us yeah. about what this you know what this ought to be? Yeah, and are they going to like you know it's a different flavor profile in some ways. I mean, it's still def- very much a steak eating experience, but. People aren't used to having like a like a, a steak with that sort of rich layer of smokiness to it. I think it's great. I think a lot of people will think it's great, but I just I just hope to, you know I hope there are enough people that agree with me. Yeah, Barry, I'm loving this conversation. One more quick question. Um, this is a question I'm asking a lot of my guests, and I, I like to echo the mission statement here that we're here to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. Definitely inspired, man. No previous restaurant like I mean minimal restaurant experience right before opening your own place and look. Look how far you're able to grow this, right? So, so, so inspiring. Shared some great advice, some great wisdom with us. We're empowered. On this note of transform the mission, or to inspire, empower, and transform the industry, where do you think we need to go into the future uh, consciously? And hmm. I, th- I think we as an industry are very reactive by nature. Um, how do we go into the future in a proactive manner? Wow. Um- I mean, I think I think we are being forced into doing exactly that. Something that probably should have been done decades ago. Yeah. I think I think the pandemic has really forced this industry to look inward. Um, and I think what we need to do is have the courage to take those things that I think we're all learning about this industry. A lot of injustices that have taken place, things that are just not right, systems that have been in in place for generations. We need to take these conclusions that we're all coming to and have the courage to like point them outwardly and say to our guests, this is how things have to be from now on. And it's, this is not yeah. us not having a customer focus. This is, this is us saying that this is how restaurants have to work now. Yeah. And, and, you know, everybody who comes to work deserves to make a living wage. Yeah. Everybody should have benefits. And I say these things knowing full well that like at Smoke, we're not able to provide all those things yet. And yeah. so like... I'm not saying these things as though I'm on some high horse. I'm saying this is where we have to get to. Yeah, I think giving the the consumer what they want has gotten us in trouble. <laughs> right, right. You know, and I think that there's a balance that we, I think we've gotten so focused on just giving the consumer what. Like, you talk to marketers, and that's it. You just give the consumer what they want. Like, and like that's the the name of the game. But I think that there's something to be said about the consumer doesn't know what the consumer needs. Right. You know, and right. I think. Uh, and what the consumer want isn't what's best for us sometimes too. And in our fear of, of the guy down the street giving the consumer what they want and I'm not doing it, I'm going to lose to that person. We just constantly fold right. to be the most liked, right? And I think right. there needs to be this collective consciousness of like we need to work together as an industry to support each other and set some boundaries and rules about what, what the future looks like. Yeah, and I, I want to add to that. I mean, I, I, think, I think consumers are, you know, are... are, are pretty wide-eyed about 
lot of circumstances. I think they want a lot of the same things. You know, to your point, it's not that it's not what we want versus what they want. It's that I think they don't under they don't always know some of the ramifications of the things that they've that they've been demanding. I yeah. mean like they yeah, they of course they want low prices. We all do. But they also want the people that are waiting them on them to be treated fairly. I yeah. mean they all have they all have personal interactions with servers and bartenders and hosts and cashiers and they, I, I mean, I see it every day. We have relationships with our customers. They know my employees by name, and they like, and so like they want those people to be treated well. They yeah. really do. And I just think um, it's incumbent upon us as the industry to help help the, the consumer who may not have that insider's view that like some of these things that have been placed for a long time have really been treating people unfairly. Mm-hmm. And so let's figure out how to turn that around. It's going to require operators to make some changes to the way they think about their business and it may require consumers to think about the way they're you know their 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 menu price is being distributed yeah i've loved today's conversation Barry. yeah me too thank you so much for taking the time my pleasure thank you we're gonna take one more quick break to thank our sponsors and we're gonna bust out a speed round recently on the show you've been hearing it come up often Restaurant Systems Pro. If you've become interested, I highly recommend you sign up for the Restaurant System Pro 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurant tours through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. Fred will be leading the training, supporting you, and holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant, but during this no-cost-to-you 60-day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions, and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. Often, the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurateurs out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time these restaurateurs don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, there is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. Restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a team management platform built specifically for restaurants. As host of Restaurant Unstoppable, I chat with a lot of restaurateurs. One thing a lot of them have in common, they use Seven Shifts. In fact, Every restaurateur using Seven Shifts that I've come across has great things to say about them. With over 700,000 restaurant pros and counting using it today, they're clearly onto something. So what are you waiting for? Seven Shifts is your secret weapon to better understand your restaurant, hit labor costs, and keep your entire team connected with drag and drop scheduling, in-app communication, task management, labor compliance, tip management, and more. It makes restaurant work a lot easier. And I bet 
every member of your team will get value from it. Whether you're a franchise owner or a chief technology officer, a manager working in front of house or back of house, plus it integrates with other restaurant tech systems you already use like your POS, payroll, and more. That is powerful. As a restaurant unstoppable listener, you get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S.com slash unstoppable to get three months free and join over 30,000 restaurants using Seven Shifts today. We're back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Determination. What is your biggest weakness? Organization. What is one question you actually rewind? How are you compensating your lack of organization? I have good people around me. Yeah. It's okay not to be good at things. Yeah. I think people think they have to be good at everything. The truth of the matter is we're not meant to be alone. We're meant to exist in a tribe. Right. We're meant to be good at what we do and to lean on other people who are strong where we're weak. So keep that in mind. Uh, What is one question you ask or thing you look for when you're growing your team and you're finding people? What are you looking for? Um, uh, Character. What's your biggest challenge today? Uh, Labor. How are you overcoming it? Paying more. Share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. This is a core value, a way to be, a way to act. Respect. What is one common standard of service you teach your team? Something that's common within the four walls of smoked, but not common throughout the industry to go above and beyond what's expected. Treat people like family. How do you treat people like th- how do you treat people like family? Um, for one, you don't talk to them with a script. You don't, you know, if you ask them a question, you you mean it. I tell people to be conversational, be sincere. If somebody asks you for something, get it for them. Yes. Don't say. Well, that's an extra 15 cents. Or it's like, like that, it's not the conversation we want to have. Someone asks for an extra barbecue sauce, give them an extra barbecue yeah. sauce. Yeah. Uh, what is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or restaurant operator? Ken Blanchard, um, uh, Raving Fans, and anything written by Ari Weinzweig. Yeah. Which one of his book series do you like the most? I have to say, he did, I, he did the. Um, I, I, it's been a while, and so I'm going to struggle with the titles. He did one that was very, very academic, um, like really fine print academic. Like it could have been like a like a graduate level course in, in hospitality philosophy. So here's what I'm familiar with. He has um, the lapsed anarchist approach that's to the, the series. Yeah, those are the, that's the series. Okay, cool. So was there one in the, the, the series? No, actually, the one that I, I recommend to everybody who's getting in this business, he did like like a small, it's almost like a picture book. It's a real easy read on service. Yeah. And on giving great service. Zingerman's Standards for, of Service. Uh, guide, guide, to guide, yeah, guide, yeah. guide to Great Service. Yeah, Zingerman's Guide to Great Service. It is, it's, it's a... Biggest it's, lesson from that book. Putting you on the spot here. Yeah, I mean, it's... I got one if you can't think of it's, one. It's that, it's that even something as... Um, as as nebulous as great service can be um, can be converted to a process and taught yeah and one thing that I pull from that book is just the power of closed loop communication something I learned as a commercial mm. pilot yeah read back like don't just take the order read it back right and right. that right there will save you time and not having to like do it again it will you'll 
you know, like you read it back. So like if it's not coming out right, the the, the consumer takes a little bit more responsibility too. And you catch mistakes. Yeah, they'll they'll right. correct you. So like you don't want – the last thing you want to do when you're humming is throw a wrench into the, the kitchen and like – throw people off like hey like prioritize this this is on the fly we fucked it up you know like right you don't want to do that so just read back is a one simple thing you can do to to get maybe it takes an extra five seconds every order but i guarantee you throwing a wrench into the system and, and increasing your ticket times by 50 percent right is a lot worse right right <laughs> awesome sure. stuff uh what is one thing you feel restaurant tours don't do often enough or um well enough thank their employees what is one piece of technology you've recently adopted within your restaurant? Uh, it doesn't have to be like recent this year, but like recent in the past couple of years that's had a huge impact on uh, communication, efficiency, profitability, uh, anything along those lines. It can be marketing. It can be operations. Yeah. A couple, a couple that I'm thinking. So for the new restaurant, we're going to be using um, a pro- product called extra chef. Okay. Um, and we've been using something, different here that I, I don't want to I don't love it so I don't want to promote it but it's it's a back office tool that keeps your inventory keeps your costs it, like again this is what I, I'm, I was talking about earlier you can literally push a button the and see you your real time costs well they both do it okay one of them just does it better okay they're, 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 they're tools that do the same they're designed to do the same but thing. you haven't used extra chef yet we have not used it how yet. do you know it's better well I, <laughs> I can already tell. Okay. <laughs> what is it about Extra Chef that is better? I mean, it's, 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 it's more modern technology than this older one. Um, so it's built on a, just a, a more stable platform. It's, got a, it's more intuitive. It's more built around the user. You know, a lot of older technology, it's just a little bit more transactional based and less, you know, user process based. Yeah. So. Got it. Uh, this is the last question. Are you ready for it? Open the ears because this is a detailed question. Okay. If you got the news. You'll be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants will be lost with your departure. With the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you can <laughs> leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy, what would those three pieces of wisdom be? Treat people with respect. One. Take pride in what you do. Two. And enjoy the ride. <laughs> enjoy the ride. Enjoy the experience yeah. of what you're doing. I love it. Beautiful, man. I've loved today's conversation. Yeah, me too. Thanks Thank so you much. so much, uh, man. My pleasure. And I can't do what I do without people like you being so generous through time and your knowledge. And uh, you're, you're making a difference. So thank you so much. Uh, there is no question you are on top of I almost asked, forgot to ask you, who do you respect and admire in the industry and believe would make a great guest like you made for us today? We found you this way. Amy Mills called you out. Who are you calling out? Um, so the first people that came to mind uh, for me are uh, Josh and Christine from Honey Butter Fried yep. Chicken. They're Past good friends the of show. mine. Yeah. They're good friends of mine. I think they've um, really been um, on the forefront a lot of and a lot of changes. They've they've always like been just a little bit ahead of the curve on a lot of new ideas that become mainstream after after they've kind of tested the waters for yeah. people. Um, I love the way they run their business. I love their fried chicken. Um, and, and I think I just nothing but respect for them. So I love them. Um, I can tell you, and this is somebody who's retired, um, Ina Pinkney. Do you know Ina? No. She um, is affectionately known around Chicago as the breakfast queen of mm. Chicago. She was been in this business for 
a million years, ran, had, had several of her own restaurants, most recently um, a place called Ina's. And um, she was kind of been the matriarch of the restaurant industry. She's actually our first customer here. Oh, wow. Um, first person in line, huh? First person here on day one. Beautiful. And she took me under her wing and is just full of wisdom yeah. and great ideas. And for somebody who's been around um, a very long time, an incredibly progressive thinker, um, and just, just as smart as they come and has just stories that could keep you entertained Was for that days. Ida? Ina. A- Ina. I- I- I-N-A, uh, last name Pinkney, P-I-N-K-N-E-Y. Ina, look out. I'm coming after you. I've had Josh and Christine on the show, but I'd love to get them back. We actually try to connect them with, with, while, while we're in town. One thing I'm realizing, it's not about how many relationships you have. It's about the quality of relationships you have and, and really surrounding yourself with the right people. So I'm ready to like, I've been doing this for almost 10 years. It's hard to believe. Nine years uh, come January. Hmm. And it's time to re- refilter some of those early guests back in the system. It's been five, six, seven years since I had them on the show the first time. A lot's yeah. changed, you know? Quite a bit. A lot, of, yeah. a lot more stories to tell. So we're looking to do that. I'd love to connect with, with both those uh, called out guests, or all, I should say all three. Um, and how can we connect? If we really enjoyed today's episode and maybe we're passionate about smoking, maybe we want to open our own place um, and we want to come get mentored by you and work for you, what's the best way to connect? Um, you know, we don't have a our, our kitchen isn't set up to do a ton of like staging and mentorship yeah. in, in, or intern what program. What if we're willing to give you two years? What's that? What if we're willing to give you two years? <laughs> well, what I would say is, listen, I'm happy to dole out advice to anybody who is interested in my opinions on anything. Yeah. So, I mean, what I tell people is just hit me up. Give me a call. And how do we do that? Um, best way is through email. It's yep. Barry, B-A-R-R-Y at smokebbq, S-M-O-Q-U-E. BBQ.com. Yep. Um, and I'm happy to have, like, listen, people gave me advice and I'm happy to do whatever I can to help someone else. Social handles? Um, oh, God. I got um, you. You got them? Yep. Um, <laughs> I'm the worst. Now. I'm the worst. No, you're fine. I, I'm bad too. It's smoked. Uh, I'm going to use my, my pilot days here for you listeners because it's easier for me to say things up out loud this way. I'm dyslexic. I don't know why this helps me, but Sierra Mike, Oscar, Quebec, Uniform, Echo, Bravo, Bravo, Quebec. Charlie Hotel India Charlie Alpha Golf Oscar. Wow. Check okay. it out. I couldn't have done that. That's that's Instagram. Thank you so much, Barry. I mean, seriously, no question you are. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Cheers. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. There's another episode wrapped up today at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest, Barry Sorkin. And I love when we get somebody on the show with zero restaurant experience who is able to crush it. And I mean, so many great things to take away from today's episode. Do one thing really well. Start where you can and scale over time. These big booming restaurants that you compare yourself to didn't start where they are. They started where they could. And that's exactly where you should start. Thanks again to Barry. If you're enjoying this podcast, we need your support. And there's a ton of ways you can support the show. You can support our sponsors. You can support our affiliates. Those are all the tools and services that our guests recommend during the show uh, and just follow those calls to action. Click our links and that's how our affiliates and our sponsors know that it pays to play with Restaurant Unstoppable. And then also you can come hang out in Restaurant Unstoppable Network. Uh, one of the things that I was doing in the network that I can't do any 
further is really make the, the network hinge on me. I have to extend my trust. Just like you have to extend the trust to the people on your team to execute, execute the job. My team is my network. The people who have been referred to me organically over almost a thousand episodes. I have to extend trust to these people. And it's like, Hey, you're here because my guests are saying amazing things about you. You've helped them. I trust you to continue to share that knowledge on this platform. And that's going to be the angle. And I can't wait. One thing I need to be better about is asking for help. And we do need a community manager. We need somebody who can stay plugged into the network, who can respond to network needs, who can keep the conversation going and can, who can honestly help just manage the day to day of what happens there. Event planning, communication between myself and event leaders. And if that sounds like something you're interested in, please reach out to me, Eric at restaurant unstoppable. Lastly, if you want to support this podcast, head to youtube.com slash restaurant unstoppable, subscribe to our YouTube channel. And I cannot say goodbye without saying thank you to the people who help make this podcast possible. That's Sam from Savin, Sam.com for the videography and for the social media and then Jared over at Sumadre Podcast for his editing and copywriting. It takes a team. I'm so grateful for my team. And that's it for today. Until next time, peace out.